Hi, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to a brand new episode of Opera After Dark. Our bodies like yeah. Yeah. are we doing the dance too yeah. Oh. yeah this is a ballet episode and it should be a riot oh. <laughs> Boo. so today we're going to talk about the rite of spring that's the rite of spring the rite of spring yes by <laughs> igor stravinsky igor stravinsky Please go ahead, Elspeth. <laughs> I, I half promise that I won't interrupt you. One half. Welcome to a new episode <laughs> of Opera After Dark. In case you're wondering, uh, Opera After Dark is a podcast with real and ridiculous stories from throughout music history. You having a good day? I'm, I'm having a great day. Yeah? The best of days. The best of days? Yeah. Best of days with the best of friends. Aww. Right. In this worst of possible timelines. <laughs> was that a Candide reference? No. It was... No. Never mind. What was your... No, please. No, it's from Community. That TV show Community. Oh. Yeah, I never mm. watched that show. There were whole episodes about how we were in the darkest timeline. Oh, really? Interesting. You should watch it. It's good. I thought you were talking about Candide, the best of all possible worlds yeah <laughs> the best of all possible worlds once one dismisses the rest of all possible worlds one finds that this is the best of all possible worlds so today we're talking about the rite of spring the rite of spring which is yes the rite of spring mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is not an opera it's a ballet Right. It's one that it's the funny thing is that now I feel like it's become one of the more well known ballets. Definitely. Like even Definitely. even for people that don't know ballet, they may have heard of the Rite of Spring. Sure. And the reason that they might have heard about the Rite of Spring, the Rite <laughs> of Spring. Yes. R I T E. R I T E. Yeah, is because its first performance is pretty infamous. Uh Naomi, do you wanna Talk about that a little bit. Just briefly tell people what happened. Well, essentially, the legend is that audiences were so appalled and, like, abhorred by what they saw and what they heard that a riot started that, like, took down the premiere, took down opening night. And when was opening night? 1913, I believe. And we're talking about, like, a full-on riot, like... uh, like tearing seats up and 
throwing them around or, or well i'll i'll read a little bit of like the accounts from <clears throat> oh nice from that, nice that but before said. we before we do that so the rite of spring premiere was in paris in may of 1913 and that mm-hmm. was not i guess 1913 was a very like incendiary year I'm just slurring my words already. Um, <laughs> it was, it was a year. A year. It people was a year. wanted to freak the F out. Because in March of 1913, there was a concert in Vienna that became known as the Scandal Concert. And it Scandal. was conducted by um, Arnold Schoenberg. Um, and the whole program was just music um, from the second Viennese school. So it was like Weber and Zemlinski and Schoenberg and Alban Berg. Um huh. And there was supposed to, it was supposed to end with a performance of Mahler's Kindertotenlieder, but it didn't mm-hmm. get to that point because the audience freaked out and started rioting. And the concert promoter actually punched Schoenberg in the face. Yeah. And there's a, an anecdote where the operetta composer Oscar Strauss was there, and he said that punch was the only like harmonious noise that anybody had heard the entire evening. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> I just I have such a fun time thinking about these classical music riots. Right. Yes. Like I don't know. You just think about an audience, and they're sitting there in a dark theater, probably dressed up, probably pretty wealthy, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. this performance happens and. I just, I'm sure it was like a slow state of decay where somebody's like, ugh. Yep. Yeah. Oh my God, ugh. And then later on, it's just like, then people start shouting and then somebody's like, like, why riot? Like, wouldn't you just leave? you're so angry. But you, wouldn't you just leave? I don't know. Like, maybe it's a riot because some people are like, this is outrageous, this is ridiculous. And other people are like, this is music. This is the world we live in. Like, this is art. And then that's where the riot is. I just don't... From all accounts, it sounds like everybody hated it and they freaked the hell out. So it's like, where does the impetus to a riot... Like, you can just leave. I don't know. I don't want to tell you. We weren't there in 1913. <laughs> well, we know the first place we're going to go if we find a time machine. To the, the music riots <laughs> of 1913? <laughs> First, first March place. in Vienna and then Paris yeah. in May. Get your right. DeLorean. So, Rite oh, of Spring yeah. was not the first one, but it was the same year. And I think Rite of Spring is the more infamous one. Right. And so, R-I-G-H-T. What she just said. Oh, is it? No, she just said right. Oh. All right. Gosh. You got me. I was like, I swear it was R-I-T-E. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... This work is composed by Stravinsky. Yep. Stravinsky is a huge name in uh, 20th century music, one could say. Mm-hmm. And I think what's interesting about this period of time in his life is that most people, when you ask them, you know, do they know anything by Stravinsky? How would they describe Stravinsky's work? They, the first thing that people think of if they know Stravinsky, is this period of time when he wrote The Rite of Spring and he also wrote The Firebird and Petrushka. And these are like three ballets that he wrote for the same company, the Ballet Russe, and uh, which the main choreographer of the Ballet Russe was Diaghilev and like a really, really important um, company and choreographer in the history of ballet. Mm -hmm. And they were like the biggest, um, or right now we consider them extremely important in Um, the evolution of ballet generally in the early 20th century. And so, and before this time, Stravinsky wasn't really that well known. But if you look at all of Stravinsky's works that he composed in his lifetime from like very beginning to very end, he went through 
very distinct like stylistic periods and so this we now refer to it as his russian period where he was writing things that today we consider it like quintessentially russian mm-hmm. right or representative of like folk sources um from his russian heritage but then he also went through a neoclassical period and so he wrote works that were totally different sounding he also went through like an atonal period and a serialist period and so a lot of people consider the Rite of Spring like the tr- the Stravinsky sound, but it's really only representative of one mm-hmm. like time period in his life. Mm-hmm. He went through a neoclassical period with yeah. Rake's Progress. Right, the Rake's Progress is a good example of that. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. um, I love yeah. the Rake's Progress. I do too. It's a great, great opera. opera. Yeah. A really great opera. Yeah, so, um, so before he started working with the Ballet Russe, he wasn't really that well known as a composer mm. and once he teamed up with them uh they essentially commissioned him to write the firebird petrushka and the rite of spring and so by the time the rite of spring came and it was the third one he had already had pretty good success with the firebird and petrushka and so they were hoping to like once again have kind of like a box office hit with the rite of spring and the concept behind it like the story of the whole ballet is rooted in Russian folk sources, but it also has a lot of people consider it connected with like the primitivism movement at that time. Yeah. Kind of like returning to the earth and like primal. Yeah. Like uh, animalistic kind of. Animalistic and kind of tribal, Mm -hmm. tribal times in Mm -hmm. human history. Right. And that type of thing. And so he said that the whole thing was inspired and developed by Stravinsky and uh, Rorich, um, who had this idea of creating this story essentially about, like, a a ritual that's being performed by this, like, early tribe. And so in it, the, like, really infamous part, or famous, famous, infamous part of this is that there's a scene in which, like, a a person is chosen, a young girl is chosen to be the sacrifice. Oh, right. And then she essentially, like, dances herself to death. And so that was, that is the most shocking part of the story. And it's considered, um, like, it was just considered this crazy thing to actually show on stage. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so there's the sacrificial victim. um, So there's primitive rituals that celebrate the, the coming of spring. So one of them is this young girl chosen to be this sacrificial lamb, essentially, dancing herself to death. Um, And then, and the choreography, so the music was extremely um, rhythmically irregular. So when you're learning the Rite of Spring, it's like crazy, especially that that section where the dance happens. It's like a counting Um, nightmare. Right, Mm -hmm. a, a percussion counting nightmare or their best day i was gonna say their dream we look at elspeth right i really don't know (laughs) and and it's there's this pulsing rhythm underneath there's the whole score is fairly dissonant and that was what a lot of people said was like so horrible to audiences at the time was that it was considered so jarring to listen to because of the dissonance but then the other thing that was super shocking about this work is that diagliev choreographed the ballet such that all of the dancers were not in point shoes like men and women were not right. in point shoes, and they were dancing flat foot mm-hmm. and so 
there's this great video that was like floating around YouTube for a long time when the Joffrey Ballet tried to recreate the original Diaghilev choreography. And in it, you see them, like the, the opening of that scene with the, the pounding like bum, 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 Like they're kind of in a circle where there's like these two circles moving in different directions. And the dancers are literally like jumping up and down in rhythm in flat like on flat feet and all of the movements are really um at least in that section are really jarring and like sudden and attackatory i guess if that's mm -hmm. a word and so do we know is that video still on facebook or on youtube i'm sure it is you can find it like yeah people right. use we'll... it all the time to teach this work in like music history class so we find will... it yeah we'll find it and we'll post it we'll link to it yeah. um so yeah that was like, so there's a lot of kind of discussion about what made people riot. Like, what was it about this work yeah. that made people riot? So Do some they know, people... like, when, like, what point that they got to? Are right, so apparently that? one of the dancers, Dane Marie Rambert, remembered that um, it kind of started with a shout from the gallery. So mm. someone shouted, un docteur, like, call a doctor. Like, mm -hmm. this is horrible. Um, somebody else shouted, like, call a dentist or un dentiste <laughs> and then and solid so, burn call a dentist. i'm gonna punch you in the mouth you better and, call and a dentist so this started everyone kind of like whispering and joking and giggling about how how strange and awful it was and then apparently the conductor at the premiere was told that um one of his double bass players said that gentlemen were like pulling their hats down over their eyes and this quote says, many a gentleman's shiny top hats or soft fedoras were ignominiously pulled down over an opponent over his eyes and ears and canes were brandished like menacing implements of combat all over the theater. So like imagine all of these men like pulling their hats down over their ears to like block the sound and like waving their canes. See, that is just <laughs> absurd. Can I say that I'm glad that we've moved past the time where people wear top hats kind of period but also in the theater yeah can you imagine how terrible that would be if you the be person sitting in front of you is wearing a top hat well like the polite thing to do would be to take off your top hat i think they're putting them on just so they can find something to cover their ears oh yeah like it's not a normal thing okay i yeah. guess not but Fair a gentleman enough. removes his hat indoors ah right yes. so Fair some enough. some people say that the pounding pulsating rhythms were what caused the audience to be so opposed to this work other people say that the dissonance was in the harmonies was what caused people mm -hmm. to be so opposed to it uh, some described it as sheer perversity um or the music always goes to the note next to the one you expect was what one critic said hmm. um and then but other people think that the music kind of was devoid of the one thing at least audiences at the time it felt devoid of the thing that they felt was most important and that was like human expression and human feeling and mm. so they felt like it kind of stripped all of that away it's just a different type of human expression right, right. Yeah. but i guess one that audiences like really didn't understand or couldn't wrap their minds around mm -hmm. um were, were there any critics at the time that liked it oh yeah Oh, for sure. Like, some people thought it was genius and it was, like, the greatest thing. But 
um, the audience certain uh, at least enough people didn't like it that a riot right. was started. Well, can um, we listen to a little bit at the beginning? Yeah, so the beginning has this like beautiful bassoon solo that opens things up mm-hmm. and when I listen to it now, I think it sounds beautiful, but apparently like even that was considered weird and dissonant to people at the time. So here's a little bit of the opening um, and this is from part one, which is called part one is the adoration of the earth. So the there was there are several people who were there on the world premiere that did feel as though they were witnessing like a piece of history. They mm-hmm. felt it was genius, they felt it was like something they'd never seen before. But it was for kind of like the Parisian aristocrats that were filling the theater, it was certainly mm-hmm. very barbaric to them. And yeah. so then to have these kind of like what was considered really primal and um and kind of animalistic, I guess, like acted out before you was something that the audience was not into. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was what essentially incited the riots. I think this period of time to me musically is mm-hmm. one of the most interesting just because it's like a point of divergence where at the same time you have Puccini composing some of his most popular operas which are much closer to a romantic style and then you have people like Stravinsky who are very much in what we think of a 20th century style Mm -hmm. and it's happening at the same time but they're both so stylistically different like completely different but it's happening at the same time right whereas yeah I just don't know of another point in music history where things are so different at the same time yeah and i think that it kind of speaks to a lot of what was going on in the world at the time too where like there's huge technological changes happening and there's a lot of tension on like 
politically speaking between countries this is like right before world war one right and so i think that there was a lot of culture of change in the air i think yeah i should clarify too that diagliev in the ballet diagliev i believe was the person who ran the ballet ruse but nijinsky is the dancer who did the choreography so i misspoke right oh, here okay yes but corrected they, corrected the <laughs> two of them together are very important um like diagliev commissioned stravinsky but nijinsky's the one that choreographed the flat foot stomping and so he's the one that was like, responsible uh, gotcha. for that yeah well hopefully if there was somebody who like actually knew that bit of information and when you said it the first time and they were all like oh, oh that's not right right oh, it's okay yeah. now they're like oh. yeah no, okay Majinsky. <laughs> yes but yeah and another thing that i think is really ironic about this piece is that now, now it's it, i mean obviously it's still done mm-hmm. and it's not so uncommon to hear it. like this was the first ballet that i ever saw Really? Oh, yeah. Was the Ride of Spring. I've never seen it performed live as a ballet. I've heard it yeah. performed in concert, but never with dancers. Granted, yeah, I've so. only I've only ever seen a handful of ballet performances, but th- yeah, this was the first one that I ever saw uh, when I was in college. Hmm. Um, and I had been exposed to it through a, a humanities class where we talked about it, so maybe I was drawn because of that and yeah. because of the controversy, but... Um, for many people, like you said, when they think of Stravinsky, the first thing they think about is Rite of Spring. Yeah. And so it's it's just kind of funny that after being so controversial, then it became like a mainstay. Or at least something that people keep going back to. Well, totally. it was really only the opening night that was controversial. Oh, so did they still do the rest of the run? Um, I think that they still did more performances because apparently Puccini was at the second performance. Really? Yeah, and he did not like it. Oh, wow. He that's said it was the work of a madman. Wow. Um, and he said that at that performance, apparently the audience was like booing and hissing and laughing, right. but then also simultaneously applauding. <laughs> and so yeah. um, I think it was like contentious for most of right. So then you, that you, early life. You have um, big camps. I think that's before a time yeah. where you have so clearly uh, different musical genres mm-hmm. also. Mm-hmm. Like at that time, there's folk music and there's many different types of music, but it's it was nowhere near like how we have today where, you know, right. there's everything from still classical music is performed. You have pop, modern pop music, um, screamo music, country music, mm-hmm. and everything. Mm-hmm. And people... They may just say, I don't like that, but they're not going to riot. You know, they're not right. going to punch somebody in the face. Mm-hmm. Except, what's the what's the music where people like mosh? It's moshing music. That's the only time where somebody might get like hurt. Like heavy metal music? Yeah, I guess so. I guess. You mean like a mosh pit? Yeah. Oh. That's the only time where somebody, but that's like part of the, yeah, that's part of the musical experience. Right. There's nobody punches right. somebody because they think anymore? it's so bad. I don't know. Do I look somebody? Do I, I look like somebody who moshes I to don't you? Know. I would not Ooh. survive in a mosh pit. I definitely would not survive. So apparently, um, this there was a run of performances in Paris and in London, and then from that point onward, like Nijinsky's choreography specifically was not revived, even though the piece was 
performed other places until mm. like the 1980s. Oh, and wow. so I think that I'm pretty sure that that video of the Joffrey Ballet that I was talking about was 1987, I think. And then, oh, okay. so that was like part of this initial like revival of Nijinsky's choreography in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a little bit of like drama attached to this um, because so. The Ballet Russe went on tour to South America in later on in 1913 in September, mm-hmm. and Nijinsky went with them. And he, while he was there, he ended up marrying, um, I think, one of the dancers. And but Diagliev was not on or with them on tour. And apparently, the dancer that or the person that Nijinsky married was Diagliev's lover. Dang. And so then when... Well, she had to have known. When <laughs> Diaglia found out that basically his lover had married Nijinsky, he was, you know, completely furious. And he basically fired Nijinsky because Dang. of that. Yeah. Wow. And then... Um, yeah, so there was like a bunch of drama that happened after that. But that kind of... That's part of the reason, I think, why that you have these three major works that... We're all like Diaghilev, Nijinsky collaborations mm-hmm. with Stravinsky, like the three of them, and then that kind of came to an end. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So. So, a question yes. that I have, I don't, I imagine you, neither of you may have the answer, but when it comes to reviving ballet choreography, so this was choreography from 1913, mm-hmm. and then it wasn't revived until over 70 years later. Yeah. Nijinsky and Diaghilev did make up shortly after but like it was it during world war one so they i guess they were like, <laughs> like lots like, of like bigger right. concerns yeah. than this, this rivalry right but i think before video like before you have video right. recording uh-huh. it must be that like you just pass down the choreography like from like, dancer to is dancer. there a way that's r- written or like who from what I understand of ballet, and I'm definitely not an expert, but I know people that are, like, I don't think that there is, like, choreography notation in the same way that there is musical notation. I could be totally wrong. Yeah. But I feel like that's such a hard... How do you notate movement and timing and right. pairing and, like, that I mean, kind of you would thing. have to get so descriptive to really get the same... Right. ...result. I mean, now it's a non-issue because there's video. Right. But I don't know, because, like, George Balanchine is this mm-hmm. legendary choreographer, right? right? And But a lot of his stuff was, what, was like video the 60s? Recorded. Yeah, 60s. it was video recorded, so they have, like, yeah. a video archive. But, yeah, Do you know, know if if he ever did a Ride of Spring? Even presumably. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I guess I can imagine, like, any choreographer taking on the Ride of Spring now. It's, like, a pretty... It's like that's like a a lot of baggage that you have to deal with for yeah. the Rite of Spring, right? Yeah. That's so, true. Uh, maybe that's why it's not performed that much because it's just such an undertaking for someone to yeah take like on. Like everybody's but, expecting something. Either they're expecting something outrageous, or I don't know. Right. I don't know. It's Mind hard. Yeah, yeah. It's hard when somebody um, has specific expectations. Apparently, Martha Graham danced it. Um, Martha Graham is the dancer who Aaron Copeland wrote Appalachian Spring for her. So she danced it in a, um, what's his name? Stokowski choreography. Um, And so, like, and that was in New York. 
Um, and there was there's many different choreographers that have done versions of it, but um, since then, so I don't know. That's interesting. Yeah. And was, as far as we know, was Stravinsky, were, were they trying to do something groundbreaking or did they just feel like this is where the music was taking them? I guess maybe we don't know that. I think he certainly wanted to create something that would be a hit, mm-hmm. right? And I feel like the like zeitgeist of the time was like avant-garde pushing, pushing and pushing the, the boundaries. Yeah. And like, because also when you think of other things written in this time period, like think about the decade between 1910 to 1920. Like a lot happened. A lot happened. Bluebeard's mm-hmm. Castle is in that in that time. I think it's 1911, right? You have Ervartung and. Um, by Schoenberg, I think is in there. And were those hits when they premiered? I don't really know like how we qualify whether they were hits, but they, I think, like certain circles felt that they were ge- right. works of genius, right? See, and that's so. that's where like right now you listen to Puccini and you're like, yeah, he actually was composing for a hit. Like, right. It sometimes it almost feels too obvious. Like, okay, that's like a little bit more yeah. schmaltzy than is necessary. <laughs> Um, but then when you listen to the more, in quotes, modern sounding stuff, right, it, it doesn't feel like they're trying to compose for a hit. Maybe a hit within a very specific audience. Mm-hmm. But that's even today, that style of music is not easily accessible to people. Yeah. Like you already have to be educated and knowledgeable about the art form to access that music. Right. I think that's when we, this really, I think, too, is when we start to see the split between, like, art music and popular music, right? Because really before, like, the jazz age, you didn't really have, aside from folk music, which was considered, like, traditional Mm -hmm. kind of rural music, I guess, right? You didn't really have, like, a separate genre of pop versus classical. And then Mm -hmm. really it's not until the 20s where you start getting this, like, sharp divide between the two begins to grow, I think. Okay, so I'm thinking in my head right now of a scale from zero to, or one to ten, one being like, this is so normal, it almost puts you to sleep, and Mm -hmm. then ten being so outrageous, it makes you want to just, like, murder someone. Mm -hmm. Um, And the two experiences that I want you to put on the scale are the Rite of Spring, but also um, Wagner and the introduction of the Tristan chord okay and do you want us to put ourselves in the historical mindset yeah i think put yourself in the time because it's it's all relative to the time right like a lot of people hear the tristan chord now and they're like okay what what big not a big deal i think that when that opera came out and people heard the tristan chord for the first time i feel like the general reaction was oh what is so innovative (gasps) Yeah. So magical. And then people heard, like, The Rite of Spring, and their original thought was, what the fuck is this? <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay, so Rite of Spring is a 10 on that scale. Yeah. And I feel like yeah. Tristan would be much, much lower, because I feel like most people yeah. heard it, and they're like, oh. Like a happy. So evocative. A happy 6 or maybe 7, where people are, the boundaries are pushed, but in a pleasing way. Yeah. yeah. Or maybe it's a, just a different scale entirely. But it's the same concept, generally. 
Yeah, but I mean, like, the Rite of Spring, when you listen to it, it's more than just, like, Tristan, I feel like you have this dissonant harmony, and Wagner does things with the harmony where, like, it doesn't resolve where you think it's going to, and, like, especially with Tristan, like, the whole opera doesn't resolve, and, Mm -hmm. like, it's just one prolonged harmony until the very, very end, Mm -hmm. right? But with Stravinsky, you had these, like, pulsing rhythms in irregular patterns you had bitonality you had like whole tone scales you had octatonic scales you have all of these things in it that create such a foreign sound to people at the time whereas i feel like yes wagner was innovative in his harmony and use of light motif and that type of thing but it was still tonal i guess in a way like Mm -hmm. it didn't tip the scales really and right Whereas yeah. Rite of Spring, it's like l- literally every way that you can push the boundaries. Right? Yeah, like it's not, a, it's not an atonal ton- work. Yeah, it's definitely tonality. not atonal. But mm-hmm. the the harmonic, the logic of the harmony is just so different from what everyone would have experienced. Whereas it's like Wagner took the logic of harmony everyone is familiar with and took it one step further. Mm-hmm. I would say Stravinsky was like, okay, totally new framework. Like, yeah. And these are something different. These are within 50 years of each other, too, which is, yeah. to me, is also interesting. Yeah. It's not that long. Yeah. Right? Is it? Do you know the exact date on? Uh, Tristan, he wrote it between 1857 and 1859, and then it made its world premiere in 1865. So it's a little bit more. No, just under 50 years. <laughs> just under. <laughs> 48 years. There you go. Nailed it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, nice. Yeah, so that's the Rite of Spring. I feel like you should definitely listen to it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. We'll go and watch the videos watch that the we've Doc added to, yeah. to operaafterdark.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I, I guess it's not the most common, but it's definitely done around. Like if you were for looking sure. if you were you looking for Rite of Spring, yeah. you could find it. Yeah, if you can't find a, a full ballet performance of it, I'm sure you can find it on some kind of concert program somewhere. Yeah. So if you just want to hear a live performance of the music. Um, yeah. it's a, is it a one act? No, it's, it's four, but four are, sections, I think. But are they done straight through? I feel like when I, when I did see it, it was paired with something else, but it was a while ago, I don't remember. Um, sorry, it's two parts and there's multiple sections in each part. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's not long enough to be like the only thing on an evening. So you have to right. have something else mm-hmm. with it, I think. That's um, interesting. Yeah. Well, that's that. That's that, folks. Hopefully nobody has rioted from this episode. <laughs> nobody uh, just decided to flip a table. Right. Oh, the perfect expression of anger. <laughs> Flipping the table. Well... Pulling my top hat over my eyes and oh. ears. Right. <laughs> right. Take me away from it all. Yes. That is so ridiculous. Raising my cane in anger. I wonder what people will look back at today. There's probably a lot of things that people can look back at and be like, why did anybody wear that or do that? Mm-hmm. The top hats and canes is pretty, pretty ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Pretty ridiculous. And with that, this has been another episode of Opera After Dark. Thank you guys for listening. We'll look forward to seeing you next week. Yeah. Uh, in the meantime, as you wait, 
Yeah. Uh, please take a second to go on to uh, Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to your podcasts and leave us a review, like a nice one with five stars. Mm-hmm. Or if you d- if you did riot at any point in this episode, you could do one star. <laughs> <laughs> we'll allow it. Yeah, but preferably five. And let us know what you like about it. You can find us also uh, at operaafterdark.com and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, mm-hmm. Let us know what you think. We we always love hearing from fans of the podcast. Uh, and it helps us make decisions on, on what to put on the podcast next. Yeah. With that, I'm Naomi. I'm Elspeth. And I'm Kyle. And we will see you next week. Bye. Bye. Thank you.